we are about to start week four of Reset, and this week we're going to talk about what it's going to look like to rebuild. So let's get started. Good morning, Bethel. How's everybody doing? Man, sounds like you had your coffee today. Woo! All right. Well, it's week four of Reset, and uh, if you've been at Bethel for any amount of time, uh, you know that we uh, usually preach through series, maybe through a book or a series of topics, and this is the first time in um, since we've been at Bethel, since I've been at Bethel, that I don't know when this is going to end, okay? This is not the never-ending story. It'll, it actually will end one of these days, but we originally planned for a five-week series, but it's going to extend a little bit more because the book of Ezra is a book that really, really um, speaks to what's going on today. Uh, if you remember where we're, we built this, um, this series on uh, the fact that Ezra is a book of history, and it tells us the story of a divine reset with the children of Israel. Um, today, we're going to talk about rebuilding because the reason that God had allowed a reset to happen is because there was something that needed to start over. And what I'm grateful for, and I think you can say the same thing, is that when we make mistakes, God always gives us a second chance. And, and I'm so thankful for second chances. I am actually thankful for third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances with God. Um, as long as we're living, we have an opportunity for a do-over. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over into Ezra. We'll be in chapter 3 today. If you have your Bible app, uh, you can open up to the live event and follow along there. Today we're actually going to read through the entire chapter of chapter 3. There's a lot of good truths that are here. And uh, what I want to do is pray for us before we jump in, and then we'll hit the ground running, all right? Let's pray. God, this morning, once again, we are grateful for second chances. God, we're grateful for a do-over. Um, here at Bethel, as we are looking at what it looks like to rebuild and what it looks like to reset, my prayer is that you would do the greatest work in our hearts, that our hearts, God, would be rebuilt, that our hearts would be reset, that our minds would be alert and our hearts would be receptive to what we have um, in your word today. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, as many of you know, we lived in Costa Rica for uh, 14 years, uh, Christy and I as a couple. We actually lived there. I lived there as a kid, and uh, Costa Rica has two seasons. You know, here in the United States, we have four. Oklahoma, we have four. There's two seasons I, I wish would extend a little more. You know, the spring and the fall, I wish those were longer in Oklahoma, but we don't have that. But in Costa Rica, we have two seasons. We have muddy and we have dry. And so it's either raining or dry season. And the, dry, the rainy season starts in May and goes all the way through November, sometimes into December. And the rain is unlike anything else. The rain and the water that comes is incredible. It's a force of nature, and many times the rain brings incredible destruction. Uh, Christy and I have seen um, whole communities underwater. We've seen mountains come down. Uh, there's the Central Valley that we lived in has these big old tall mountains that surround the entire valley, 
And some of those mountains during rainy season, you can just see them come down uh, from the mudslides. Um, God gave us an opportunity uh, several years back to buy a youth camp uh, property up in the mountains. And it's in a very wet area in the Caribbean. Very pretty. One of the prettiest places I've ever been to. And a few years back, um, I think in 2013, we had an incredible rain and incredible flooding that happened around the country. And I got a phone call uh, from our, a guy that was the custodian on the property. And he said, the whole mountain's coming down. And I was like, okay, so all it is is mountains. So if the whole mountain's coming down, what is going on? So I got in my car. It's about a 45-minute, 50-minute drive. And we took off. Me and Pastor Stewan went there. And we drove up to the property, and it was unrecognizable, just the way the destruction, the water, the rain, the flooding, the mudslides, incredible. We rescued the family out of there, um, and we went back the next day, just total devastation. We had to rebuild. And we had to figure out... Where did we need retention walls? Where did we need a place for the water to go? How could we rebuild some of the structures so they weren't damaged anymore by the rain? And the, and the question is, now what? Do we rebuild or walk away? Do we do something better or do we leave it like it is? Um, we, we have the story of the Israelites that were taken away into bondage. They were taken away into slavery, into captivity by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he took them away into captivity. And God had foretold this 200 years before and said, if you don't obey and if you don't respond and if you don't repent, you'll be in captivity. And they were there for 70 years. Now, the reason this is titled Rebuild is because we see in chapter 3 that the children of Israel were let go to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. This was a decree by King Cyrus, and he wanted them to go back and actually rebuild the temple of God. One of the things I want us to realize and, and kind of capture in our heads, it's hard in Yukon, Oklahoma, it's hard in Oklahoma to imagine a place where there is no temple, there's no church building that proclaims Jesus or proclaims God. Uh, here in the 73099, we have 75 plus churches just here in Yukon property. There's almost 60 churches. And so we're used to seeing a church on every corner, especially in Oklahoma. But can you imagine 70 years of silence, 70 years where there's no temple, there's no place where God can be worshiped, but also the glory of God cannot fill. It's an amazing thing. And so we're heading down this path over the last few weeks to reset our minds and our hearts. And we're trying to ask God for divine direction so that we can have a divine reset. Now, if you haven't listened to any of the sermons, it's okay. You can pick right up today. But I encourage you to go back um, online and watch the last few weeks on YouTube or on Facebook. And just watch and listen to this setup coming up to the divine rebuilding, which we're going to talk about today. We're asking God to give us these stirring orders. We're asking God to tell us what's next. And then we want to have confidence to obey when he stirs and shows us the way. And so King Cyrus the king was stirred. He sent the people back. He understood that God was in control. He understood there needed to be a temple. And so he followed God's stirring all the way through. Week one, we saw God's in charge of who's in charge. Second week, we saw that if we don't move, we were never stirred. If we're stirred and don't move, we're disobedient. We want to be obedient, children of God. And then last week, we saw that being a Christian is not a habit. It's actually a lifestyle. And a lot of people during this time away from the temple, or for away from the, the building, away from the congregation, have asked themselves the question, do I really need the church? Do I really need to be there? And a lot of people, truthfully, are deciding never to come back because they say, I don't need it, and it was a habit that they broke over the last 90 days. And so we need to make sure that it's not a habit, it's actually a lifestyle. Let's jump into chapter 3 of Ezra. Look at verse 1. It says, in early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified 
purpose, with a unified purpose. If you're taking notes, there's a few things that I want you to jot down. The first thing is, is that in order to rebuild, we have to be unified. We've been talking about this a long time. Really, this year has been kind of a theme of unification because where two or three have the same mind and are unified, they are unstoppable. And so in order for us to rebuild, and you can see here that the, the children of Israel, these, these Israelite people assembled, they came together. Remember, the church is an assembly. They came together, and they were unified. So unity keeps us focused. Unity keeps us protected. Unity is obedience. And when we realize it is unity is not about me, because what I'm doing when I'm unified with someone is I'm laying down my preferences, I'm laying down my desires, I'm laying down what I want, and I look at the group and I look at the others and I say, you know what, this is not about me, this is about Jesus, the commander, this is about the one that unifies. And so we put it all aside, our personal agenda, and we realize that when we're unified, it's extremely powerful. So we got to get unified on our mission in order to rebuild here at Bethel Community Church, we need to be unified, and we need to make sure we have the same mind as one another. So we say this at Bethel, and I'm going to ask you to say it with me. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. So that's the one unifying factor that we have at Bethel is that it's all about Jesus. And then it's not about me. It's all about others. And so Jesus and others, okay? That's the mission. That's the marching orders for Bethel. So that means that I have to have hard conversations with those that I love. That means that sometimes it's uncomfortable, but I've got to talk with people because they're more important than I am. Jesus is more important than I am. And that means I need to redirect, and I always need to redirect and set my affections on Jesus. That means my mind needs to be focused on the long term, not the short term. You know how you have a conversation with your spouse uh, if you're married, or you have a conversation with your kids, or maybe your siblings and you have a conversation isn't there something that arises in your heart where you always want to have the last word every single time? Like, you just want the last word. And so sometimes you're fighting and arguing and you're bickering back and forth, and at the end you just say, word, I had the last word. Anybody do that? And, and I'm really bad at it because the next day I'll remember, oh, I should have said this, and I should have said this would have been a great one. And then I'll bring it back up just so I can get the last word again. Anybody else do that? Stupid, right? That's really what it is. That's the last word, stupid. But we also need to understand that when we are trying to unify with other believers, we're trying to unify with the church, that our mission is focused, that I don't need to get the last word. Guess who gets the last word? Jesus. Guess who gets the last word? Others. Because I need to unify in the mission. And then we need to unify in the work. Do you see that they actually assembled and got about the work? They were all unified. We all have a gift to give. God has placed in each and every one of you, if you are his child, he's placed in you a gift. If you are not God's child, I want to call you out and say, listen, Jesus wants you to be a part of his family. All you need to do is open your life to him and give your life to him because he wants you to be a part of his family. But we all have a gift to give. We all have a place to take and we all have time to give. All of us are the same and we need to make sure that we're on purpose. My church, Bethel, cannot rebuild without me. And each of us are on mission for the same purpose. My church cannot, cannot accomplish the mission without me. And then we need to get unified in the purpose. We need to see people that are spiritually disconnected to come into a relationship 
with Jesus. We need to see that the marginalized, those that are uncared for, those that are poor, those that are set aside, the orphan and the widow, that they are cared for. We need to make sure that we don't isolate, but that we live out loud. We need to make sure that we're not selfish, but we're completely generous. And that if you live in our community, you know that Bethel Community Church cares about you. That if you really, that it would be really, really, really hard to go to hell in the 73099. That's the mission of Bethel. That's the mission. And how is it going to happen? It's when we're unified, and we're unified in our purpose, and we're unified in our service, and we're unified in the mission, we can actually rebuild. Let's go back to verse 2. It says there, Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of God, of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 3, Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. They had began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. Here's the second thing that we need to focus on, and we see this very clearly with the people of Israel, is that we need to rebuild, or in order to rebuild, we have to get back to worship. We have to get back to worship. Here's a total bonus side note. If you notice there that this was a family business, and I don't mean business in the commercial sense, I mean that the work of the altar, the work of the temple, the work of the community, the work of the assembly was a family ordeal. And we need to look around to our own family, our extended family, our family that's up close. We need to lead them into the church. Last week I told you dads, lead your families to church. You have the greatest spiritual influence on your kids. So lead your family to church. This is a a family business. Our first focus should be to minister in our own families. So the very first thing they built was the altar to God. They understood that it was the altar that connected them to God. It was the very first instruction in the law. So here's where we're at today. We don't want to get confused. This is the Old Testament. This is the Jewish scriptures. Today, the altar is different because Jesus came to fulfill the law, to tear down the requirement of worship only in Jerusalem, thank goodness. He has set up his altar in your heart. Where your heart is, that's where your worship is. Where your heart is, is where your worship is. You know that we all are worship. We actually were created to worship. We could worship the lake, or we could worship sports, or we could worship our kids. We could worship our work. We could worship our toys, our spouses, the beach, the mountains, and the list goes on. Because we were created, we were made to worship. Because whatever has our attention has our affection. So whatever has our attention, that has our affection. So where is your attention? What are you worshiping? We all have to check ourselves because our heart is an idol-making heart, and we'll always find something to worship. If we don't put Jesus as the center, if we don't put Christ as the center of our hearts, we're always going to find something to worship. Notice that in verse 3, it says, even though. Can you say that with me? Even though, on the count of three? One, two, three. Even though. One more time, class. You guys got this, all right? Count of three. One, two, three. Even though. So even though they feared the local residents, they rebuilt. Do you see that in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the fear, it didn't stop their focus to rebuild the altar? Fear is an incredible motivator. You know that fear is interesting because it's a feeling that either moves us or stops us. So what are, the things that, what are some of the things that we fear as believers? Sometimes we fear what other people think. 
What other people think is the driving motivator in our life. We're either going to move forward or stop, depending on what other people think. We also fear that we may lose control. Now, anybody that's a control freak, the last 90 days has been terrible for you. I'm raising my hand because that's me. We want to control everything. We think we control everything. And the truth is, we can't control anything. Everything's out of our control. But we fear things that we may lose control over. Or we fear, we fear that we may lose our lifestyle. Has anybody had that fear in the last 90 days? My lifestyle is going to go away? Yeah. We fear the unknown. We fear that for the safety of our loved ones. But here at Bethel Community Church, we will rebuild even in fear. Because the fact is, this is not a time to be silent. This is not a time to back down. This is not a time to give up. This is not a time to run away. When we have, been, when we have a God who moved into our mess and took up residence, this very God laid down his life for us on the cross, this God who was dead but now is alive, this God loves us no matter what. And Scripture says that nothing can separate us from his love. Also, Scripture says that he has given us a purpose and he's given us a hope. He's given us a salvation. He saves the unsavable. He also defends the weak, and he fights for us. He cares more about us. He cares so much about us that he will not leave us alone. He chases us and pursues us. And so we will not freeze up in fear. We will actually get fired up because of fear. Let me tell you this. Jesus promised trials. Jesus promised that if you pick up the cross, if you follow him, he did not say you would just walk in this life with no struggles. He actually said, you will be divisive. You will pick up the sword. You will have fights, even among your own family. The enemy hates you, and I want you to get this. The enemy hates you, and he does not want you to succeed. Scripture says he's like a roaring lion, that he's looking to who he's going to devour. He destroys you. He hates you. And if an easy life, if you have an easy life with no trial, with no struggle, guess what? That means he's winning. Because Jesus said that when tough life happens, when a tough life happens, you're on to something. You've actually found the abundant life. You're close to victory, and Satan is pulling out all the stops because he does not want you to succeed. He wants you to have a peace, meek, and mild life so that you're not dangerous. Let trials and fear fuel you. This means that you are winning. So if you're struggling, and if you have struggled in the last three months, guess what? Jesus is not done with you. He's actually trying to perfect you. He's trying to work through you. Let's get back to the text, verse 4. They celebrated um, the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and the offering required of the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord. Fifteen days before the festival of shelters began, the priest had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Now, I'm thankful that we live in this age because you imagine sacrificing day and night, week after week, day after day, slaughtering animals. You'd have to just continually do this in order to stay right with God. But we see in Scripture that the Lamb of God, Jesus, came and took away our sins. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He took place. He took our place. The Bible says that he was, a, a place, he was in, in our place of sacrifice, and we, all, we now live in him because of his sacrifice. So they got back to worship before they fully built the foundation. They got back to worship before anything was finished. They got back to God's calling and God's leading. Look at verse 7. 
Then the people hired masons and carpenters and brought, uh, bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and oil, olive oil. The logs were brought down from Lebanon uh, mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa. The king, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. The construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone. Do you, you see that no one sat? No one was separated? It was everyone that was involved in the work. It says who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests and all the Levites. The Levites, who were 20 years old or older, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. The workers at the temple of God were supervised by Jeshua and his sons and relatives, and Cadmiel and his sons, all the descendants of Hodaviah, they were helped in this task by the Levites of the family of Hanadad. We need to rebuild. In order to rebuild, we need total involvement. Everyone involved. They put their money and their, tasks to the, their, their hands to the task. They did not ignore the work of God. Here's what we need to understand about Bethel and about the work to rebuild. It takes a lot of money to rebuild. Here's, here's the, the, the dis- uncomfortable part of ministry and church, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is free. It doesn't cost anything. Jesus paid everything. But in order to serve and in order to be the church and to be the family, it actually costs something. We all need to be about the work of the ministry. That means we're investing with our money. We're investing with our time. We're investing with our talent. And I love the word that is used here where it says workforce. Because a church unified is a workforce that is unstoppable. And when we come together and we work together and serve together, it makes a total difference. There was the Levites. These were the temple servants. And then it was the people, even if this wasn't their full-time job. Everyone came together to work. Now, I want a side note, total extra. Did you notice the property when you came in today? Glass, grass was cut. It was green. Super nice. No trash anywhere. You know, that didn't just accidentally happen. We don't have these little Bethel gnomes that run around. That's not a thing. Actually, people yesterday spent their morning making this place look beautiful. You guys did an amazing job. It takes, yeah, let's give them a round of applause. It takes a lot of work and people coming together and unifying. You have to grab someone and make it happen. And so someone has to do the work. So the church should not be about building, I'm sorry, the church should be about building up, not about tearing down. Have you heard before that the church is only known for the things it's against? No, don't do that. No, don't do that. No, don't do that. No, don't do that. Actually, our church needs to be known about the things we're for, the things that we want to lift up and build up. Because guess what? Bethel Community Church is for freedom. Bethel Community Church is for abundance, abundant life. We're for flourishing. We're for sober living. We're for serving. We are for Jesus. We're for others. We're for purpose. We're for life. We are for more than we're against. Do you know why? Because we have one on our side that is for us. If he's for us, who can be against us? This is an amazing life to live, and as a Bethel community church, we can unify and actually work together to rebuild. Verse 10 says this, When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. You know, in order to rebuild, we need to celebrate the wins. We need to celebrate the good things that God is doing around us. 
I'm so driven many times by the future that I forget to stop and reflect and thank God for all the good that has happened. You know, last week, two different people looked me up for baptism. Man, that's something that we need to celebrate, stop and pause and celebrate. Last week, mothers came and looked up to me, looked me up to dedicate their babies to Christ. That is something we need to stop, pause, and celebrate. Last week, we were unified as a church, and it was an amazing thing. And this week, you're back. We're rebuilding little by little because we're on the same page. We have to celebrate what God is doing among us because he is so good. His faithful love endures forever. If he is for us, who can be against us? And if we are experiencing trials, James says to count it joy, because that means God is actually working. God is actually working in us and through us to accomplish more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. I want you to read verse 12 and 13. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. (laughs) This shows me right here the generational aspect of church. Some of us just want to go back to the good old days because we think it's better. Some of us want to go to the future because the future is better and brighter. Some of us are going to cry and some of us are going to celebrate And that's the difference between generations. But you know what I believe? I I believe that the future is far brighter than our past. I believe that the next generation is actually going to change the world. I believe that our children that are upstairs in Bethel Kids are going to turn this world upside down. And I think that however they do it, whether it looks different than what we're doing right now, we're going to get behind them and celebrate them and rejoice with them because they are going to actually accomplish the mission that God has placed in our hearts. Because we've laid a foundation. And our foundation is Jesus. And these kids that are coming behind, these young people that are coming behind, are going to do far greater than we have. And we should celebrate and rejoice because of it, not be upset about it. It'll be different. It'll be unique. But it will be theirs. And that's what we want. We want the next generation to pick it up and carry the mission forward. It's time to lead and raise the torch. You know, there's 20-something sitting in this room right now that are not leading. And I want to call you to be a leader, because it's going to take you stepping up to be a leader. There's 30-somethings that have never led that you need to stand up and you need to start leading. There's 40-somethings that are letting everybody else do it, but you need to stand up and lead. It's time to lead. Things are going to change, but we're going to rejoice. Things are going to get hard, but we're going to rejoice. We are never going to go back, and we are going to rejoice. Things are new, and we will rebuild Things are new, and we're going to celebrate. And here's one final question to wrap up. Does your life represent the isolation, captivity temple? Or does your life represent the rebuilt one? What is God doing in your heart? Remember, we need to unify in order to rebuild. We need to worship in order to rebuild. We need total involvement. We need to celebrate the win. And listen to me, church. The church is not a spectator sport. Being a part of the church family is not a spectator thing. You cannot be the church and go to church at the same time because you are the church. Your job, your workplace, is your mission. Your job is your sermon. Your colleagues are your congregation. Your words are your influence. And so today, we need to leave here and we need to start 
building. Because you don't come to church, you actually are the church. And that's what's going to change this year at Bethel Community Church. Everyone's going to be unified, everybody's going to be on task, and everybody's going to be on the mission. Let's pray. God, this morning, we need you. You are the God of the mission. You are the God who calls us to rebuild. And what we're begging you to do, God, is to do far more in us than we could ever imagine. God, as we're trying to figure out what it looks like to rebuild our church after time away and separation and isolation, we know that you have not changed. Your mission has not changed. That our job is to take spiritually disconnected people, people that don't know you, people that have never heard about Jesus, people that are living a life looking and searching for hope, God, that this would be the moment that we would step up and we rebuild. It doesn't have to look like it used to look. It doesn't have to be exactly like it used to look. We just want to make sure that in our hearts, your altar is set up and we can worship you and that that worship would just overflow into our community, into our conversations, into our thoughts, into the way we act. God, my prayer is that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is spiritually disconnected, that they would feel that drawing of your spirit, and today they would make a decision to open their lives to you, that you would come in, that you would change them, that you would adopt them as their children, that you'd set them on a new path. Before we finish this morning, I just have two questions. The first one is, what is God rebuilding in your life? What does it look like to rebuild? Maybe right now what you're trying to do is reset some expectations, reset some priorities, putting God first. And maybe the rebuilding that God is doing in your heart is to rebuild and reconstruct your faith in order to live out loud. So, so what is God doing? What is God asking you to rebuild? My next question is, if you don't know Jesus and maybe you don't have a relationship with him, maybe you know some of the words and maybe you know something about him, but you've never invited him into your life. Scripture says that he's pursuing you, that he wants a relationship with you, and that he loves you. He is God, he's the creator, and he wants a relationship with you. And today, I wanna to invite you to open your heart to him, open your life to him, and put your faith and trust and confidence in him. If you say, Pastor Ray, that's me this morning. I, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want, to come, I want him to come into my life and change me and save me and make me new. Would you just slip your hand up? I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to pray for you that God would intervene in your life and that you'd be able to take the step of putting your life in his hands. Anybody like that and say, Pastor Ray, pray for me. I need Jesus this morning. I need him to come in, change me, save me, and build something in me. Anybody like that today? Love to pray for you. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Keep working in our hearts. Keep stirring. No matter what comes against us, we can overcome because of what Jesus did on the cross. No matter what we face, Scripture says that we've already won because Jesus is the great overcomer. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do we